Has the Relationship Alive podcast been helpful for you? If you like what we're doing and want to ensure that the podcast continues, you can help that happen for as little as the price of a monthly cup of coffee or a decent sandwich, or if it works for you, a lovely dinner. You can also make a one-time donation if that's better for you. For more information and to choose the tier that feels right, please visit neilsatin.com support. Or you can text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Thank you so much for your help in making this podcast happen and being part of making the world's relationships more conscious and thriving as a whole. Oh, and one last thing. If you haven't downloaded it yet, make sure that you grab my free guide to the top three relationship communication secrets. These three things are easy to do and they can completely transform the way that you communicate in relationship. So whether you're talking about something really easy to talk about or something really, really challenging, the way that you communicate it will bring you closer together with your partner so you can experience deeper intimacy, deeper connection, even if you're talking about something challenging. So again, that guide is free. And to get it, all you have to do is, vi- is visit neilsatin.com slash relate, or you can text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to download the guide. So if you want to support the podcast, you can text support to 33444. And if you want to get the free guide, you can text relate to 33444. All right, easy enough. And now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. There's something unique that brings us together with our partners, and perhaps the most important task, at least as we get to know our partner on a deeper and deeper level and build intimacy is to uncover this unique thing that brought us together and that gives us the opportunity to heal and grow and transform and then to really shine brightly with each other in the world. And some of us get there and some of us don't. And part of the purpose in this podcast, Relationship Alive, is to help you uncover whatever obstacles you have to getting to that place, that place of transformation that allows you to connect even more deeply with your partner, with yourself, and with your connection to something greater. So we're having a a very special return visit today from Heidi Schleifer, who was on not so long ago to talk about the three invisible connectors in relationship. And I hope if you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, please do. Um, and it's uh, you can find that episode by going to neilsatin.com slash encounter. And the reason it's called Encounter is because Haiti is the creator of Encounter-Centered Couples Therapy. And... Um, most of the time when we have someone on a second time, it's kind of, you can just listen and, and we'll do our best to bring you up the curve really quickly here. But this is going to be a continuation of that conversation because what we talked about is that there's this 
what what Haiti calls survival knot that is created when two people come together. And today's show is going to be focused on how you unravel the survival knot. I'm going to let Haiti detail this a little bit more so you'll understand what I'm even talking about right now. But I just wanted to let you know that it's a it's a very special day for me, and I'm looking forward to uh, to this experience as well. Hopefully, as much as you are. Um, if you are interested, of course, in the detailed show guide for this episode, you can download that at neilsatin.com/encounter. Two, and that's just the word encounter and then the number two. Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And I will send you a link to the show guide for this episode, as well as all the other episodes of the Relationship Alive podcast. Okay, that's enough from me right now. Haiti Schleifer, thank you so much for returning to join us on Relationship Alive. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Neil. Shall I just plunge in and start? Let's dive in. Yes. Okay. All right. So, unraveling the survival knot. It wasn't something that I even understood myself for the longest time in my relationship with my wonderful husband, Yumi. And uh, when I did my work with couples, I did not know how to enter the territory that I'm going to describe today. And I didn't know how to enter that territory because Yumi and I had never traveled it as a couple. And what I began to understand is that even though our relationship was growing, our connection was deepening, our consciousness was evolving, there was something there that seemed to still keep us apart and a bit scared of each other. I can't fully explain it, but if you're a couple, you know there is like a place where you're not 100% liberated and where the energy doesn't yet flow as freely as it deserves to flow. And the metaphor that I talked about last time is the metaphor of the neighborhoods. So we are this big world that is expanding each of us. And it's filled with neighborhoods of all kinds. Some are precious neighborhoods where we feel alive and passionate. And we feel like this is our essence. This is me. There are neighborhoods that are mysterious We don't even know them. Our world is still filled with neighborhoods we are yet to discover. And then there are tough neighborhoods where some of them we're even afraid to go in by ourselves, and yet it is in our own world. And the definition that I give to the survival knot is where my toughest neighborhood in this relationship meets your toughest neighborhood in this relationship where my deepest longing, something I just profoundly want, just meets where you are most defended, unconsciously really, resisting my pull and vice versa. It's an impasse. 
and sometimes even an unconscious impasse. We're not that aware of what is this impasse. We just know that at the deepest, deepest level of longing, you don't seem to respond in the way that I so want you to and vice versa. And so this impasse issue is the survival knot, meaning it is the survival dance of the, of the couple. It's the place where we are most defended without actually knowing the behavior of defense that we are putting up there because the dance is something we identify as reality. This is the reality of our relationship that actually it's coping instead of living. And coping is always in isolation, whereas living is in connection. Our essence is in connection. So living is in connection. Coping is in isolation. And we're not fully aware that in the survival knot, we are coping with life. And one of the reasons we're not so aware is that coping sometimes is very elegant. You know, people will say to you, you're coping so well. Well, yes, we are coping so well, but it's still coping and not living. So Yumi and I began to feel safe enough to actually sit across from each other and to be able to say the sentence, what's the toughest, toughest thing for me to say to you is, and to have the courage to somehow enter into the toughest neighborhood with the other one fully visiting, fully present, fully delighted in your honesty in bringing the deepest struggle that you are facing in the relationship. And so this was a process in which slowly, as we made it safe for each other, we uncovered the knot. And the knot just unraveled in our case because of time. You know, we we so entered the territory, it began to unravel. So then I thought, how can I invite couples to unravel their survival knot? What is it I can do in terms of actually having them enter, not year, year, or year, two years, whatever time it took us, and I don't even know because it was just a time of daring, a time of boldness, a time of courage in our relationship, but how can I do this? and actually have them really enter there, dissolve it where it's caught, and come out on the other side to build a new neighborhood under construction, you know? And what's really interesting is that it makes sense therapeutically because the research now shows that there is a five-hour window where the brain is really open to rewiring because the brain has this amazing error detection mechanism so that if you enter into the toughest place where actually the lies about your life show up, that maybe you're not that smart and maybe you're not that deserving and maybe you're not that worthwhile and maybe you're not, you know, you're not 
smart, whatever the lies are with which you've been coping, when they show up there, but a juxtaposition occurs at the same time with a sense of, oh, I'm worthwhile and I, I deserve this love that I'm receiving right now. And, and, and the eyes that are looking at me tell me I'm so smart and I'm so useful and I'm so whatever. When that juxtaposition occurs where the new reality and the true reality of your life meets what you've been coping with from the time you were a little kid, the research now shows that the brain has this error detection mechanism that lets you know this is the truth. And the truth is always a life-affirming, life-giving, coherent reality. It's never the lie you've been coping with, with which you've survived your, your circumstance. And so it makes sense to bring a couple into this territory and work for at least five hours, okay, so that while the brain is open that way, while that window is available, there can be a rewiring in both people where they come out of the experience having really had a transformational experience, and by that I mean a changed brain, a rewired brain, a brain where the old message just doesn't make sense anymore. And it doesn't mean the message isn't going to show up every once in a while, but there will be new neural pathways showing you a different possibility. And then when you put the two next to each other and you read, for example, on, on two cards, you read the old and you read the new, you know it's the new one you are committed to living. And so having that as my guiding principle, the possibility because of the plasticity of the brain for a couple to actually have an experience where their brain changes, I decided to create a map. And I, I present this map to the couple, and I'm going to talk about the map first. Great. Now, the Great. reason I present the map is because we're going to go into the jungle. And you know, when you go into the jungle, you really do want to have a guide and you want to know that there's a map that goes from the beginning of this trek through the jungle to coming out of the jungle alive and well and actually stronger for the experience. And so I found that having a map really helps. And so my first step is to present the map. And I do it on a flip chart so that together we can see the map unfolding. Now, who do I do this with? I do this with a couple with whom I've already done some work of preparing them to, for the art of hosting and the art of visiting and the understanding of the neighborhoods and the visit to some of the neighborhoods so that entering the toughest neighborhood is something they've already, they've practiced the, they've practiced the way to enter a neighborhood. They've practiced what it is to host in a neighborhood. They've practiced what it is to visit in a neighborhood. They've practiced also the understanding that you only go to one neighborhood at a time because if you're going to choose the toughest neighborhood, that's the one we're going to be in 
no other neighborhood, the toughest neighborhood. We're entering that one. We stay in that one till we dissolve the knot. So the couple to whom I present this map is a couple who already has the experience of those muscles called the art of visiting, the art of hosting, and the understanding of our world as the metaphor of our world as neighborhoods. So I stand at the flip chart and I say to them that I will ask them in the beginning, what is the name of the toughest neighborhood of their world with each other? So what over the years has been the absolute deepest suffering? What has caused them the worst fear, anger, rage, disappointment, resentment, whatever all that cocktail of emotions is that people encounter in relationship? And it's the beauty of relationship will encounter every cocktail of emotion possible. Makes us human. But I'm going to ask them to give one word for that cocktail. So I just took uh, here uh, a couple I was working with. And for him, the neighborhood was never enough. For her, the neighborhood was left out. So you take the whole experience you've had over the years, whatever that is, and you name it with one or two words. You know, sometimes the one word might be despair. The one word might be betrayal. So it really takes a courageous act to take a whole experience that has so many, many layers and give it one word, but it's a very important piece of this work because that word now symbolically represents a very rich, multi-layered experience, but now it is one neighborhood, one word, which, as you know from understanding where I'm going, is going to change. It will never be that neighborhood again because visiting it will shift its meaning in our world. So I say to the couple, we're going to give it one name, not yet. I'm going to first show you the map, but then you're going to give one word to this neighborhood. And then we're going to decide where shall we go first? Shall we first go to left out or shall we first go to never enough? Where is it better to start unraveling this thing? Because when you've got a ball that's like a terrible knot, you know that there's something sticking out somewhere where if you start there, it'll unravel more easily. Is it never enough or is it left out? Which one is it? Now, you can see that I repeat these words a few times because with my neutral voice and actually with a bit of excitement because these have been horrendous sufferings for the couple. But suddenly somebody goes, it's so exciting. We're going to go in there and it's going to be either left out or never enough. Where shall we start? And when that comes to the couple, suddenly they can hold together 
the actual suffering that's been in that neighborhood with the excitement of being on a hero's journey in them. And that peace is also an important part of the journey to know that's a hero's journey and there's a rite of passage going on here where you're going to go from a tangled up, terrible ball into freedom and, and liberation and creativity that comes from not being stuck in the middle there. I think you can see that not I'm showing you having energy stuck there. So when one of you is going to decide, you know, which one, where we start, and intuitively, the couple knows. It's unbelievable. There is a bit of conversation about it, which I don't get involved in. And ultimately, they decide, oh, if we go to left out, well, then never enough is going to actually already have been visited some, and it'll be easier to fully understand it. You know, they get it. And the reason they get it is it's their life. You know, it's not mine. I don't know where that ball needs to get untangled. I just know how to untangle it. But I don't know where it needs to start. They know, and I trust their intuition 100%. So then I say we're going to start in one of the neighborhoods, and the person who's hosting in that neighborhood is going to begin to talk about their experience there to the visitor. The visitor is going to come over the bridge and be fully present. And the interesting thing is that full presence is also delight. In our capacity to be fully present to another, there is delight. Before we started, you introduced me to your two children, Dash and Zella. And you could tell that I was fully delighted to meet them, but you could tell that they were fully delighted to meet me. And we were in full presence with each other. Now, I'm never going to forget them. You know, the way he was holding you, uh, you know, embracing you, Dash, and the way Zella was like kind of glued to him too. And the three of you were just such a beautiful trio of humans. And I'm never going to forget this, but they're not going to forget it either because we gave each other full presence plus delight, which, which is part of it. So when the visitor comes to the host, they bring that delight. And it's my job as a guide to assist the visitor to keep their delight, even though they're entering uh, territory in which they're profoundly implicated, meaning there's going to be things their partner are going to say that are just so hard to hear, and then on top of it with delight. But that's my job as the guide to make sure that the person speaking receive eyes of delight from their partner when they say that which feels the most dangerous to say. So that's the beginning. But there is something very important about how you speak as a host. Because in the toughest neighborhood, you have actually said things many, many times over and over again. And I will say today, 
which is international, take the biggest risk a day. I don't know if you Googled <laughs> it, but it happens to be international, take the biggest risk day today. If you repeat yourself, meaning if you say something and you've already said it, but a little differently, because it's international, take the biggest risk day, you don't repeat yourself. You say something new. Now, you're going to discover, I say to the couple, that if you can't repeat yourself, you're only going to say four or five things. Because after four or five things, it's got to be the same damn thing. <laughs> so, today, which is International Take the Biggest Risk Day, you're going to say something you've never said. Maybe you know it on the inside, but you've never said it to your partner. Today, you say it. Because you're going to have a delighted present partner who's really wanting to get to know you. Now, I put a little bowl, you know, like four things are being said and a little bowl where you repeat yourself. And the reason I know they repeat themselves because I write everything they say. They have to say it in a concise, essential statement, one after the other. And so the same thing shows up. And I say, oops. The same thing. Okay, now they say something that's new and different, true, authentic, actually deeper. And I say, when you dare to say the new and the different, you'll see it's like popcorn. The new and different, there's going to be more and more of it till you're going to get to another little ball. And that's the best one of all. I don't know. Because if you speak truth and authenticity, you are going to get to the place where you actually don't know what to say. And that's the best place because your partner is going to be delightedly there with you to connect with you where you don't know. Nothing new has ever been discovered by anyone without going through the corridor of I don't know. Einstein had a lot of I don't knows. Darwin had a lot of I don't knows. Margaret Mead had a lot of I don't knows to enter into a completely new understanding. So you too will go through the corridor of I don't know. But the big thing is you will be with your partner. Your partner will be connected with you in the I don't know place. And many scientists get to the other side because they have a partner with whom they are thinking, you know, alone. Mm, I don't know. I mean, there are eureka moments in the bathtub, but, you know, <laughs> anyway. So after I don't know, I am going, I'm saying to the couple, I'm going to encourage you to grab the first thing that comes up, even if it feels like from left field. And what's very interesting, I say to the couple, is that after I don't know, something unbelievably important will show up. And often it will scare even you. It's like, oh my gosh, what is this? It could be an image. It could be a sentence you've never said actually out loud, fully. I mean, that lives in your gut, but look, there it is. And after I don't know, the big challenge for the host person is really to grab. Now, what's really amazing, and I say that to the couple, is that if you dare to have I don't know, and sometimes more than once, I don't know. You will arrive at a magical place called Main Square. And what is Main Square of that neighborhood? 
is a life-giving, life-affirming, coherent statement you've needed to say since you were a child, but couldn't say because of the circumstance and couldn't say in your relationship with your partner because the circumstance was actually the same. But here is that statement. And when you're in Main Square, you'll feel it right away. You'll start sobbing. You'll start shaking. There's going to be a visceral cellular rearrangement in there. And you'll know, wow, that's my truth. You know, there was a woman, for example, who went through unbelievable statements of of hate to the partner and then self-hate. And then Woman Main Square was, I'm a radiant being woven in the womb of God. Where did that statement come? It came from the truth. She has been that from the time she was born, but she's never known it. Given the circumstance of her birth and childhood, she's never spoken this. But it's inevitable if you dare to go to the bottom of the you. And this theory, the you theory, was spoken by Otto Scharmer. And there's a book by Otto Scharmer, The You Theory. And the theory is that in order to come to come to a place where the future calls you and where statements of a real future calling you can be liberated, you've got to go to the bottom of the you. You've got to go where it's the worst. You've got to go to feelings you actually have felt but have never verbalized and have never expressed because they're so disgustingly awful. You've got to go to the bottom of the you, but if somebody's with you there holding you with delight, imagine you go to the worst place of your life and you're held with delight and every time you look at the eyes of the other, they're just there looking at you the way you're looking at me now, like, yeah, I'm right here with you. I know what you're talking about. Then it will inevitably turn around and the future will call you. Like for this woman, I am a radiant being woven in the womb of God. She had never spoken that statement. Her husband never saw that kind of radiance in her face. She was telling her truth. And that's the future calling her. And that's her main square. The main square is a radiant being. That's the main square. That's her truth. She cannot do life in a relationship if she doesn't know she's a radiant being. I mean, there's no way. But imagine the new neighborhood under construction. She can build from knowing she's a radiant being. And that's just that one side. Imagine what comes on the other side when the other main square is spoken and two real people connect. So that's the first piece of the journey. And that is the main square. So now I'm explaining this whole thing about the main square. And interestingly enough, everybody gets it. You know, it's not like, it's not psychobabble. I I can't quite explain. It's just real, real talk about life, you know, and people get real talk about life. Psychobabble is sometimes hard to understand. I don't always understand psychobabble. But this is just real talk, you know, you are going to go down the you and you're going to say all your whole truth and you're going to go through, you're never going to repeat yourself ever, ever, 
And if you repeat yourself, you say something deeper, truer, more authentic, then you're going to get to I don't know, and then you're going to get to the main square. Period. Done. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the main square is a beautiful place, always. And so people are not in their main square till they've arrived at this beautiful, beautiful place. There's a book by Dr. Zeus, All the Places You'll Go. I don't know if you know it. It's a fantastic book. And this is really that kind of journey. You go through the darkness. You come out in the light. And then we sit in the main square for a while on a bench. And, it, and if there's a song, I'm a radiant being, we look it up. Is there a song for the main square or a poem? You know, and we stay there a little bit, looking at how the literature and the music have given us this message. A psalm, there could be a psalm about the radiant being that we are. So we stay there a little bit to find how literature, how the arts have given us this main square archetypically forever. Do you see what I'm trying to say? This is not a new place for this person. This is the place archetypically where the arts have already celebrated us. Yeah, and I could see too how there are so many ways that the arts can uh, reinforce the tough neighborhoods. So being in that new state of being and then being able to be reinforced and energized by that vibration and exactly. how the exactly yeah. so for example one uh, man arrived over the rainbow was his his uh, over the rainbow was his main square we sang the the one uh, by i think it's a brazilian uh, version of one day over the rainbow you know that uh, it's a wonderful rendition we sang it together now after that, we now enter a new territory, which is called core reason. And core reason is why is it essential? I say to you today that I'm a radiant being. Why? On this date, uh, international, take the biggest risk day. Why should I tell you this? And the core reason is why was I born? Why am I with you? What's the highest purpose of my life and our life together? Because you know what? If we don't know our highest purpose, we won't live it. But if we've verbalized it, then we can live our highest purpose. Let me read you, you know, an example. Because I want us to grow old together and be happy growing old together because that is really important for me and so that our children can actually watch a happy couple growing old together and our grandchildren can see a happy couple growing old together, a couple who supports each other in their individual growth and in their relational growth and in their professional growth because Ultimately, it will help us feel free and at peace. I'm just pulling this out of my notebook. Here is one core reason. There are many, and some people have very big uh, uh, core reasons that have to do with the world. 
you know, but they always rooted first in the relationship, in what they are reclaiming with each other. And so the core reason is something I write down and then the couple looks at each other and I read it over and over again because it sets the direction of what is it they're doing this for. In this case, for this man, growing old together and having having a legacy where children and grandchildren know that's what that couple was able to do and they were able to free each other and, and live at peace. You know, that's some legacy and an epigenetic package to pass on to the next generation. So then I say to the couple, we're going to take a break and it's going to be a learning break because this takes about an hour and a half, this particular piece. And I say to them, we're going to take a break and you're going to see what you, you've learned just from getting to main square and setting the core reasons of why you were a couple and why you were born and what is it that you are doing with your lives. So then I do what I do at every section of my work, which is that the couple will write four things, something they've learned, meaning they didn't know it. They absolutely didn't know it. They've learned it. Something they've relearned. They knew it but now they knew it in a deeper way, something that totally surprised them, like, whoa, where did that come from? And something that intrigues them. They really want to think about this and think about it deeply and research it and, you know, read about it, etc. So they're going to write that and we're going to discuss it. I will listen to their learnings and their relearnings and their surprises and their intrigues because they're fresh and they are usually from a dimension of wisdom that the couple doesn't even know they live in, but they do. And when that comes to the surface, it's like, whoa, that's wise stuff. Well, it is. It's wise and conscious. Okay. I'm still at my flip chart, and I've just described the first hour and a half. And then we take a pee break, you know, our bladders are ready for that. Biology is calling. <laughs> so we take a break and I let them know we're going to take a break because when we come back, we have another hour and a half. And here is what we're going to do. And I put a very big square on the flip chart and that square is called implicit memory. So there is explicit memory and there's implicit memory and explicit memory is memory we have, you know, when it occurred, who it occurred with, who was there, how old was I, you know, what did I wear, what did they wear, explicit. Implicit memory are the things that are there, we just don't remember when, where, how, and yet it's a climate that lives in us and it triggers us. And if we don't go to implicit memory, it's going to continue to fuel the toughest neighborhood because we have absolutely no idea what's fueling it. It's implicit. And as I think I said last time, a friend said to me, the past is a silent voter in your apparent present, meaning you are not the author of your present because the past is a silent voter in it. And the implicit memory 
is the silent voter. And if we do not identify the silent voter, the silent voter will keep voting in our apparent present because we won't be the authors of it. And so I'm explaining to the couple, we've got to get to implicit memory because unless we go there, the silent voter will still rule your relationship. So that's where we're going to go. But how do you go to implicit? So it's very interesting because we all have a narrative of our journey as children. We have a story. And that story is explicit. So it's not the one we're going to tell today. You know, we know that story. How do we get to the implicit? So there's a very interesting way that I actually designed and it just came out of trial and error. There is a place in the brain that processes locations and numbers. It's where we learn mathematics and geography, right? That place in the brain. There's another place in the brain that has our photo album from our childhood, right? The amygdala. But I don't know what that place in the brain is where we process numbers and location. But we can trick the brain. We can go to numbers and locations and the brain thinks, okay, we're doing math here. We're doing geography here. And then if you say, because when I was a kid and you take the first image that shows itself, it'll be a random image because you weren't thinking of the narrative of your childhood. You were thinking about, and I have to say this to you in Washington, D.C., on uh, our street at the corner of R and 16th at 1701 uh, on the sixth floor, apartment 644, which is two floors below the top of the building, the top from the top of the building, you can see the Washington Monument, which is at the bottom. You see, I'm going places and I'm saying numbers and my phone number is 202-628-3848. And when I say it backwards, it's 84, whatever it is, I've got to be in that part of my brain. Mm -hmm. And when I'm there and I say, because when I was a child... The first image that comes up, I haven't thought about. Because I was thinking about the Washington Monument a mile from my house. And that first image is the first image. And we're going to take five like this. So we're going to go to that part of the brain where we process locations and numbers and grab a, a totally random five pictures. Now, when those random five pictures are there... The partner who's visiting is going to tell a story. And the story, even though the pictures that are random don't always come chronologically, the partner will tell them chronologically. And because I wrote them all down, I can help him, him or her. Once upon a time, a little girl was born, a little boy was born, wherever they were born. And there was a mommy there, there was a daddy there, and that little boy had a sister or a brother, whatever they know about that. One day, and now they weave the five random pictures. Now, you're not going to believe this, Neil, but if you weave five random pictures, you get an archetypical image that surprises the person whose story it is. They'll go, whoa, I didn't know that was me, actually. You know, the archetypical image the archetypal story that comes out is a story that's already been there 
for, for generations, generations, generations. It's their story. It's always heroic. Always heroic. No matter what's in it, it's heroic. And what's interesting is that some people have had unbelievable trauma, unbelievable trauma, and the archetype that comes is of a joyful, resilient child with an inner world that is so rich. That's an archetype. People who live trauma and their resilience keeps their joy alive, but they haven't known it because all they have is the narrative of trauma. They've not seen the archetype of the resilient, joyful child with the inner world that is so rich. And so it's always a surprise, always. One man found the archetype of the boy boy, and he has an incredible relationship with his son that is a boy boy relationship out of which the wife is kept out. And he's never seen the archetype of the boy boy in him because he's a very serious lawyer. And he just hasn't known that's the archetype he carries. But the five pictures were these boy boy things with sports and friends and and mischief. And I mean, it was amazing. And these were things he had never thought about in all his journey. They are his they are in his life, but he hadn't looked at the boy boy. And he understood now how he was repeating with his son something he had done with his friends, but it was not appropriate in his marriage because his wife is on the outside. It was about great when he was a boy with his buddies, but now the, his son is not his buddy. I mean, he can, he certainly can be a good friend to his son, but that boy boy, boy boy thing, he was continuing with something totally unconscious that was in the archetypical uh, picture. And it's heroic to be a boy boy. I mean, they did amazing things, amazing things as boys. And his son is also quite a, I mean, troublemaker in the best sense of the word, but <laughs> a little bit tough. But there was so much that opened up from this archetype coming to the surface. So we're going to take five random picture and we know already that the implicit memory is going to give an archetype that is essential to know about so that some of the coping survival dance that's going on doesn't have to go on anymore because now you have consciousness about the archetype you're carrying. So that piece is very exciting. I'm telling the couple that's where we're going to go. That's very exciting. And then comes this incredible thing that can only happen in the 21st century, which is that we have invented time machines. And those type of time machine can take a partner, the visitor in this case, back to the past to visit the home of the host who then we take one picture, you know, probably the most important of the five picture, that's where the partner comes in with their time machine. So they'll say, you know what? I just got myself a time machine and I'm just going to come visit you. You're this little kid who just got in terrible trouble because you stole the car of your parents. You put all the champagne that was in the cellar in the, in the trunk and you brought it to the party and got royally drunk with your friend. You just got in terrible trouble and I'm going to come in to talk with your mother and your father and your brothers and you 
because there's some things I want to say that are important to say. And the partner comes in and becomes the champion of the child in the sense that they both thank the parents for bringing this child to the world because I'm going to marry your son when he's a big person and I'm going to fall in love with him. And uh, there's some things that are going to go on that I think at this point, if they were known and understood and handled wisely, could actually assist, you know, in the development of this child, etc. And the partner speaks from wisdom and consciousness. And and it's usually that visit from the future partner to the young person is so experiential because we know there's an inner child, let's say, in the partner. But we haven't sat with them in their bedroom on the bed and said, you know, I've just talked to your mom and I told her this and I just talked to your dad and I told him this and I'm sitting on the bed here with you and please don't get scared, you know. I know. <laughs> it's like not exactly the thing you expected that your future partner is going to sit here with you. But uh, I really also want to say some things to you. And then the partner usually sees the ways that they repeat some of what wasn't useful in childhood. And then they say something like, you know, I don't want to scare you, but I'm going to be somebody in a way hurting you in the same way. I'm just realizing how I'm just going to repeat a certain pattern. And I've come here to understand that better so that, you know, on international, take a big risk, take an even bigger risk day, 2017, I will know how to be with you in ways that are so different than what you're suffering here in your own home. You can see now that experientially, this time machine visit allows the partner to see themselves, the one who visits, as the perpetrator, if you will, I don't like the word, but as somebody who continues a pattern, that's just not helpful for the young child that they're just meeting now, hurting alone in their bedroom, let's say. And so um, they say whatever they need to say, and then they ask, have I said everything to everyone? And what's interesting in that question is that only the little child will know that there's a grandpa, let's say, who lives in another state, but is just such a loving figure and is somebody the child wants to thank. And then they'll say, I want you to take your time machine and go to my grandpa to thank him for the visits I get to do in the summer where he's so loving to me and where I actually experience what it's like to be unconditionally appreciated. Then the partner takes their time machine and they go to the grandpa. And usually there are lots of tears there because it's so powerful to be able to thank some of the figures that have actually allowed you to stay alive in the best way possible. And only the little kid knows that. And so sometimes they'll say, I want you to go back to my mom. And I want you to tell her you've been a little rough on her. You know, she also had some good things she did. She's doing. And, you know, the partner goes back. I am coming back with a message. I've been a bit rough on you. You know, your your son wants you to know that he also appreciates. So we stay there till everything that needs to be said for the child to feel like, oh, what a liberation. I feel free in my own home for the first time with my mother, with my father, with my brothers, you know, with my grandpa, you know, etc. And then the partner says, well, then, 
I'm going to plant a very big kiss on your forehead and I'm going to go back with my time machine and meet you in the future because we're both going to meet in 2017. And so they do. They give them a big kiss. They go, bye. And there's just something so sweet about this little kid, big person, little kid going, bye, you know, and the partner, bye. And then the machine arrives in the future. And there's been a real visceral shift because we've stayed in childhood long enough in that window of opportunity and put in place enough juxtapositions and contradictions to how it was for some rewiring and reconsolidation to actually occur. So this takes whatever time it takes, sometimes two hours. But the brain, meanwhile, has taken many pictures of a completely new reality in which the mother is listening to messages that really needed to be spoken and the father is listening to messages and the child and the brothers. Let's say the brothers were horrendous bullies and they, they get all kinds of messages and they begin to know and there's protection of that child which never occurred when the child was a child. So the brain has taken in now many, many contradictions and juxtapositions in a place it has needed to be rewired in. And the rewiring is occurring. The brain has that kind of plasticity, and so the rewiring is occurring. So by the time the time machine is back in today and the two people are together today, something has shifted biologically, viscerally, cellularly, and they can feel it. The body feels different. The flow in the body feels different. And they tell each other just a little bit about how different it feels, you know. Now, I say to them, once we're back, this is just one side. We're going to do the other side the same way, exactly. And only then... Will we look together at what are the new neighborhoods under construction that have to be built so that this new wiring of the brain can actually continue, the new neural pathways can continue to form so that the others fully wither and you're just new people having a free, liberated relationship. And that is the piece of work we do after both neighborhoods have been visited. I tell the couple, we will then look at what are the new neighborhoods. And sometimes they'll actually draw the new neighborhood. What are the main streets, parks, cafes? What needs to be there so that they can live this new reality liberated reality, conscious reality, living in connection rather than the old coping in isolation. That's the map. And I give that whole map because when we enter the territory, as you can imagine, it's it's big, the territory. It's a big territory. And it's good to have the map. And I will say to the couple, any questions on the map, any concerns about the map, 
any ideas about the map. Because once we enter the territory, we're in it and we stay in it till we come out on the other side. And so let's now talk about the map. People have questions, ideas, you know, it's very interesting. We talk it through. That's, and then at the end, by the way, when they are back in the, in the current reality, they also do their learning, relearning, intrigue, surprise and intrigue, because a lot comes out of that visit. And that's when I say, you know, now I've described it, questions, ideas, pee break, and then we actually enter the territory. And there it is. I think I've told you everything about it. <laughs> all right. So many questions. And it also, it sounds, it sounds so magical. Like the process sounds like alchemy um, between is. two people. It is. And I think your word, two words are very well chosen. Magical. It really, really feels magical. And the alchemy becomes so clear how the coping nourishes each other, how the living will nourish each other, you know, how they will flourish from being able to live in those two main squares with the core reasons that they put out. Yeah. Yeah. W one thing that you mentioned um, a, a little bit here and then in one of your writings that I read prior to this conversation is the um, the way that all of these core problems in the toughest neighborhood that someone experiences, those dark beliefs about their inadequacy, their aloneness, their inability to love or be loved, that those in essence can only exist in isolation. And that part of the magic is that in bringing the partner to those places, you're just in that act alone, you're showing the brain that you're not alone, actually. And so like some of those things, it makes sense that they would just evaporate um, because they required the the vacuum of aloneness in order to exist in the first place. Absolutely. And that's really where the error detection mechanism of the brain comes in that we are wired for life and we are wired for coherence and we are wired for connection and therefore the moment the partner meets the person down the you to the worst part of the loneliness the worst i mean you know caught up like my husband knew me in a cellar, in a Transylvanian cellar with rats and, you know, alone there. But when I showed up with my warm eyes in the loneliness of that child, when he just could fully feel it, but there were my warm eyes with him in the cellar. New pictures just got created in his brain of two things. Wait a minute. I'm not alone anymore. I was in that cellar, but I'm not alone anymore. And I felt worthless there, but there couldn't be those warm, loving eyes looking at me right now in that loneliness and that worthlessness and me actually being worthless. And it's very interesting 
that we want to close our eyes when we're in the bottom of the U. And as a guide, I need to always remind, keep your eyes open, keep your eyes open, because even though the instinct is to close the eyes and go back inward in the aloneness, loneliness, we need to keep our eyes open so the brain can do its photographing of the partner present. Mm. Yeah, and so that brings me to a question about uh, refining the art of visiting, because that seems so important for the visiting partner to be able to maintain that loving, kind presence where they're not taking these things personally. Um so, and you mentioned at the very beginning that that this is a couple that's had a little preparation in order to be here in terms of really learning how to how to visit and how to host. Um, so maybe we can revisit that for a moment here, particularly in this context of when you're in the toughest neighborhood, what is the visitor likely to want to do, whether that be yeah. feel anger or want to rescue or all of those things? And what are some hints for them to just stay present in that? Right. So nature has done an amazing thing, given us an incredible gift. And that gift is a rubber band attached to our back, attached to our own world. And when things get tough for us, the rubber band pulls us, brings us back to our world, the neighborhood of anger, the neighborhood of resentment, the neighborhood of fear, the neighborhood of protection, whatever it is. What's nice is that we can actually feel it. And I, as a guide, when I see it occurring, I can freeze everything and say, oops, the rubber band just pulled you back to your own world. It doesn't matter where. You can tell. And your job, not because you're the visitor, is to snip that rubber band when you're ready. When you're ready, take a deep breath, you know, do whatever you need to do. Snip that rubber band and let your partner know, I'm coming back to be with you. It's a very powerful thing because often the coming back is as healing for the partner as the staying there. The fact of losing them suddenly, let's say in the worst place of loneliness, the partner is gone. Perfect place for the partner to snip that rubber band and say, I left you momentarily and I'm back with you now. Because that's what didn't occur when the kid, when the person was a kid, nobody said, I left you momentarily and I'm back with you. I left you, period. So that it's not a coincidence I call it a God incidence. It's not a coincidence that sometimes just at the worst or best, depending how you look at it, moment that rubber band will pull. And our capacity to snip it, and that's where I come in. Of Sometimes I need to assist the partner. I never go into the content of what pulled them there. It doesn't matter. What matters is I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to you. That's what matters. And so that's what we're working on. We're working on snipping and coming back. And it always later gets mentioned as that was so profound for me to suddenly feel the old abandonment and then have your eyes again and have you there again. And, you know, so that piece. Plus, it 
helps the visitor practice the muscle of snipping that rubber band, snipping that rubber band. You were talking about the video you saw of me working with this Israeli couple, and you saw when my rubber band just pulled me into a neighborhood of my world, and you saw me struggling to snip the rubber band to actually cross the bridge to the woman of the couple. So usually I'm just there to guide them, but in that circumstance, my rubber band pulled me and I had to snip it to come back and be there with her, with the wife in this case. And you watched me snip it and it's it's a to-do, the snipping of that rubber band because it pulls very, very hard. And what makes me able as a guide to say to the person, okay, we got to snip that rubber band is because I snip mine. I know about snipping the rubber band to come back to the other person. I know it in my relationship with my husband. And I know it, you know, in some occurrences where something's triggered me so much instead of staying in the situation, I'm in my world, sometimes licking my wounds sometimes very mad, whatever it is. And I've left, I've left the playing field. Yeah, yes. I, I'm having so many like connections come together right now because uh, I'm often thinking about, well, something that you mentioned at the very beginning as well, the, the value in um, visiting a dark neighborhood and getting to the other side and the welcoming of it. Like, you know, you talked about the excitement with which you're like, all right, are we going to visit never enough? Or are we going <laughs> to visit left out? Like the, you know, which one's it going to be? And, yeah. and I love for couples to feel that sense of eagerness right. when, when they're in the, when they feel themselves going in to, to get excited as a right. way of shifting their experience. Like, oh, this is something new is actually going to happen right now. Yeah. And it's an adventure. Yeah. You know, and one beautiful principle we teach you, me and I, in our workshop is that your relationship is not a problem to be solved. It's an adventure to be lived. And how do you live that adventure? Well, you equip yourself. And all the things we are talking about is the equipment for the adventure to be lived. We are not solving problems in this particular way of doing couple therapy. We're living an adventure. And that's a, there's, it's two paradigms. It's the paradigm of fixing things, even healing things solving problems, the paradigm of going on an adventure, on a hero's journey. And those are different paradigms. And I never, as a guide of couple, see a problem there. I never see problems. But I see people who really want to equip themselves for a big adventure. And that's a different paradigm altogether. And I learned the distinction uh, in uh, that distinction in a wonderful um, organization and development methodology called appreciative inquiry. I don't know if I've talked to you about appreciative inquiry, but it is a phenomenal methodology. And what it says is that put your appreciative eye 
on the strength and resources of a system than rather on the problems and what needs fixing. Because if you put it on the strength and vision, uh, strength and resources and their highest vision, you'll be going in that direction and all the energy is going to come with you in that direction. But if you put it on problems and what needs fixing, the energy is going to be there. You'll see more and more problems. You'll see more and more of the things that need fixing because the energy is going to be there. And so that's why I start every session with what's your highest vision? What's your deepest aspiration? What's your wildest dream for the relationship? I learned it from a person of inquiry because we're going to put that on the horizon. And that's where we're going. That's where the energy net needs to go. When a... Um well, I, now I have a new question. Um, what if a couple isn't quite ready to both be there? Um, one of them is eager. Yes, I'm on the adventure. The other one is like, yeah, I don't know. There seems like there are a lot of problems to be solved here. Um, right. right. Yeah. So I start, you know, I have a three-part beginning to the journey and I'll repeat them. And after that, I ask them, can I be your teacher? And I create the real contract. The contract doesn't begin where I begin. The contract begins when they know what I'm going to be teaching. And when they know what I'm going to be teaching, then I ask them, can I be your teacher? And if they say, yes, I'm their teacher. But if one of them isn't sure, I can't be their teacher. They've got to choose me as a teacher because I'm going to be a tough teacher. I'm taking them to the jungle. I mean, hey. So the contract only starts there. And the first thing is dreams and aspirations. The second thing is really what is the survival dance of the couple? And I do this 13-minute funny thing about their worst, worst dance. And we name it. That's the survival dance. And, you know, we're going to turn a corner and this is the way we're going to turn. And I give a lecturette. And then I say, is this something you want to do? By then, you know what? They're intrigued. They're intrigued. <laughs> Have I had couples where somebody said, well, I don't know. Yeah. But so rarely, I would say 99.9% .9 of people are intrigued with this adventure. Mm. And we and not only with the adventure, with a person so excited about it, their teacher, you know, like who wouldn't want to learn something that exciting about life? Plus, at that time, the picture of their children is already out there. I told you about that last time. Yes. Ask for the picture of their children and their children are there smiling at them. You know, they bring these lovely picture and the kids are there smiling and they now know, Wow. Do we want to learn this because our kids are watching us? Should we maybe now be students so they can watch us learn something new, different? So, you know, I've, set in, I've put in place many pieces that would have them want to choose going north and not going back south, you know? And they can see, I'm going to guide them north, north, north. So that's the choice. And here's the big one. Will I put my energy in the service of survival and continued coping? Or will I put my energy in the service of life in connection? 
And that's a very big question. Where will I put my energy? And that becomes clear to them by the time they choose me as their teacher. So another question about the art of visiting. Uh, I like what you offered about, you know, feeling that rubber band and that it's actually a mark of success in the journey to if you vanish. OK, you vanished. And that now you're back. Now I'm here with you again. Um, and then in our last conversation, we talked about the the dialogue of of host and visitor. And the visit. it's the visit, the visit over the bridge. Right. The visit the dialogue has a different definition it's dialogue is more the meeting of the minds. The visit is really the meeting of the souls. It's a different dimension. And thank you. Yeah, you. no, thank you for that clarification. I think it's important, yeah. um, especially because of this question, which is um, another hint for the visitor in how to reflect what they're hearing in a way that helps the host feel like they're really being understood. Right. Yeah. So the visitor is allowing that which is said to penetrate, and it takes seven times longer for the brain to integrate emotional material. So facts are integrated instantaneously. Emotional material takes seven times longer because it's got to go through quite a few centers of the brain for it to integrate. And so as a guide, you have to slow it down to attune it to emotional visiting rather than factual listening. So there are four types of listening, and I'm not sure I said them last time. There's factual listening, which is a very important thing. When you go to the doctor, for example, listen factually. There is habitual listening, which is listening with the screen of your projections and your opinions and, you know, your, your story. There is empathic listening, which is listening with your heart open, which really allows you to feel what the other is saying. But then there's generative listening. And generative listening is a very different dimension of listening. It's where the whole person listens to the whole person. In generative listening, everything is open. Your heart, your mind, your, you know, your body, your, you, you've got to completely relax to be a generative listener. And what I'm teaching is generative listening. It's not just empathic listening, which is a beautiful kind of listening, but it doesn't have in it the generative power of generative listening, where as a whole essence, I listen to you. And for generative listening, there is a rhythm that is very different. It's attuned to full internalization of what the other is saying in every part of your being body, mind, soul. So it's very slow if you watch it, very slow. It's not slow between the two people because between the two people is the rhythm of generative listening. But if it's watched from the outside, it feels very, very slow. It's perfectly attuned to total internalization and integration of emotional and spiritual material, meaning at a deeper dimension, 
where something suddenly clicks also in your intuition, you know, in, in other parts of you that usually are not part of usual conversation, but they open up in generative listening. And so that's the one that I'm teaching the visitor. And do you, I mean, just hearing it that way with that intention, that already I feel has a transformative capacity for how, how I will listen. And, right. and I'm wondering, probably because when a couple comes to visit you, um, and as one is visiting the other, they're learning these skills. And, um, and one of those skills is reflecting back what you're hearing. And that can, that can be mechanical. It never is if I first teach generative listening. So the rhythm of generative listening is what I'm teaching. And I will say to the visitor, take your time. Look, at, look right now at the landscape of your partner's face. Look what you just see in their eyes. Take a moment at noticing the trembling in the lower lip. I am now teaching that listening, 7% are the words, 93% is everything else, body language, eyes, landscape of the face, um, color, color of the face. So I'm teaching the visitor that they are attending to first to 93%, even if they forget the words, they're attending to 93% first to become attuned to everything that's being said and then the words. So the reflection is never mechanical because it took, it took its time to be connected to the 93% that is there in communication. And the words are 7%. That's unbelievable. But that's being researched. That's extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, you can feel it with me now. Like when I talk, my body comes forward. My eyes are shining. My hands start moving. I mean, you just can feel me. And you're listening to all of that. My words certainly are important. And what comes with them is really all of the other that enriches them. And because you're a very generative listener, I am encouraged to keep coming, not just with my words, with my whole being. And so I'm teaching the visitor that only in their generative listening will the other reveal, them, excuse me, reveal themselves. There will be no revelation of the other unless there's generative listen, listening on the part of the visitor. So it's, and they begin to see that, that the more present they are really with this generative kind of listening, the more the other reveals themselves to them, not just to them, but to themselves. Some new discoveries for the host, like, I never thought, I'm just realizing now you know, I remember a couple visiting the precious neighborhood and it was advocacy. It was a woman talking about her role as an advocate, advocacy. And because the partner was so present, she suddenly said, 
I realize now that this neighborhood is the generator of my whole entire world. It's where all the electricity is generated for every other neighborhood. And it was just such a realization for her that her advocacy work and the things she does with a level of commitment that is just absolutely heroic is the generator for her mothering and her wifing and her friending and all the neighborhoods of her world. And I was mm-hmm. like, whoops, what a revelation. But it came from the other one being so present in that generative sense that she could discover something about herself, which had very important repercussions in terms of the balance of her life and the way she decided to reorganize things and and so on. Plus, the understanding on the part of her husband for where the where the electricity comes from. You know, mm, yeah, and to be able to support that in each other. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, and I'm curious now, in terms of the reciprocal nature of that relationship, hints for the host on how to invite that kind of listening, or how to make it um, easier for yeah. for that to happen, that dynamic so to occur. The host has a big challenge, which is to say the truth in five words or less. Only the essence. And if it's more than five words, it's an exploration, which occurs, but then you take those many words and you make them five words or less. And you will find that if you can only tell the truth, and the truth is short, you come to the core of what you are inviting the other to visit. You come to the core. It requires authenticity, transparency, vulnerability, the core. The words cover the core. And so the host has a big job there. Sometimes it's one word fear. It could be one word, fear. And then if you say one word, your whole face is going to show your fear. There's going to be tears. There's going to be shaking because you've gone to the ultimate truth, fear. So the host has a big job to tell the truth. And that is a challenge. Because mm-hmm. sometimes we don't even know what is our truth. Till somebody says you can only have five words or less. Your partner's going to learn your language. You better have just five words or less. So, yeah. And when you were talking about the time machine and going back and the visitor having the opportunity to have a uh, to have a dialogue with other significant people in the host's world. A visit, a visit. A visit. He's visiting them. Thank you. I'm, I'm very clear on that. Yeah. Yeah. A visit with the yeah. other. So the so the visitor is also visiting with those other people. Yes. Are they? How is that occurring? Are they? Who, who are, they, are they speaking out loud or? No. 
it's really the host watching watching a, a new scenario. A person from the future has just shown up in their home, and that person brings messages. That's all they do. And they bring a message to mom, they bring a message to dad, to grandpa, to my brother, to me, and they watch the scenario. And their brain's just taking pictures of a scenario that is just amazing because uh, no stranger ever arrived with a time machine parked in the front yard, knocked at the door, introduced themselves as a future partner and are suddenly there with such wise and insightful comments. But that's all. The, the, The host who's now the little kid in the picture is just watching a scenario. So, and is the visitor narrating the scenario that's happening? Saying, and I'm coming into your, I'm knocking at the door, knock, 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 and I'm entering, and I'm going to your mom, and I say, "Hello, Eleanor. I am Fred from the future. I'm going to be marrying your daughter." And sometimes it's very interesting. It's Fred from the future, and I'm going to be marrying your son. Yes, I know. This feels a little strange. You are not thinking of your son as somebody who's going to have a husband, but he will, and I will be his husband. And there will be times where our marriage actually will be legal, which I know is going to be a tremendous surprise to you. So these are the kind of things, you know, that the person says, and I've come because your son, let's say, already knows that he's gay. But he's so lonely in that because there's no room in your family for him to come out. He will because I'm coming from the future. I'm telling you, he's going to come out officially and you're going to have a hard time. So I'm telling you now, start now knowing your son and who he really is. You see what I'm saying? It's like the person from the future just bring his liberating messages. And do you find that those messages are like that they are delivered to to the visitor? Like they know what they're supposed to say the in those moments. The is so wise. I have been flabbergasted by watching these visitors arrive with their time machine and say things that I couldn't even imagine because I don't know their partner the way they do. And they say such amazing things that their partner's just sobbing, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Thank you for saying that, you know, like, it's stuff I couldn't come up with. And I'm touched because it's like, yes, that's right. Yes, yes. You know, there is so much the partner knows. For example, the Fred, the Fred example I just gave, there's no way I could understand as well as Fred does what it would mean for this 12-year-old to actually have parents who support his uh, being gay and allow him to be openly gay at age 12 and allow himself then to talk to them about his inner struggle, about being bullied in school, whatever it is, you know? 
Fred can understand that better than I can, and he can say what he needs to say in ways I could never even fathom it. And then, let's say, the story of the bullying comes out, and Fred, and then the boy says to Fred, go to my school, I want you to talk to this bully. And then Fred takes his time machine and he goes to school, and he now talks to that bully. I'm Fred from the future. So-and-so is going to be my partner, and I'm coming here because I want that bullying to stop right now. And I'm not going to go back to the future till it stops. I'm protecting him. You know, like there are things that occur that I could never even fathom that come from him understanding the need for that boy to be able to talk to his parents about things he will be hiding because he's in the closet that only he would understand. Am I making sense with absolutely, that? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and um, I was reminded of another question that came up for me while you were describing the whole process, which is, do you think that for most couples, this is like a, a one time, like they there's that one survival knot, and then, boom, they expand into a limitless future, or are they going to encounter another survival knot that then demands a similar kind of process? You know, that's a very, very good question. The answer to it is that there is one major survival knot. There aren't a million knots like that. If the couple commits to create the new neighborhoods under construction, they will be in a dimension of living in which they are liberated. And they just go higher and higher in, in their um, consciousness, really. But the commitment to create those new neighborhoods under construction, you sometimes really need support there because there are completely new habits of the heart. And um, you need to be supported there so that when that old dance knocks at the door, you can say... We're busy. We're busy building a new neighborhood. Sorry, you can't just come in like this anymore. So there, there is a need for support and to create real habits of the heart, which takes time, you know, 30 days for sure, to do something completely different for it, to, for the neural pathways to really create that new wiring. So, yeah, there's a commitment there to dance a new dance with each other. Now, some and, couples are quite evolved. And for them, it's actually easy now because the energy is liberated. It's easy now. But that's not true for everyone, depending on, you know, where the trauma of childhood occurred and what the hero's journey of the child, what the archetype of the child really is. Yeah, I was wondering the um do you have them create like explicit commitments around like here are new skills that we will be developing together or here is Yeah, here is a new neighborhood we are building together and then they design the streets and the avenues and the alleys and what does that really mean? You know, what do I do on a daily basis so I can go down the avenue of Big love. What does it mean to go down the avenue of big love? Well, it means that on a daily basis, I 
you know, like that. They do that because I don't know, but they do know. And when the dissolving of the survival knot has occurred, they're very creative. So they create a really lovely package. Right, because part of that is the freeing of all of that energy that was bound up in the knot that now is available for them. Exactly. And then they get creative. It's like the idea is we shouldn't just be a solid couple. Let's be a creative couple. Let's, um, for those who are listening and... um, I hope you have enjoyed this journey as much as as much as we have. Um, the again, just a reminder: you can get the show notes, the detailed show notes for this episode by visiting slash encounter two. That's the number two, or texting the word passion to the number three three four 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 and following the instructions. And uh, in the show guide, we'll have links to Haiti's website and her workshops. Programs, but Haiti, I'm wondering. At this point, people are probably on the edge of their seat. Either if if they're they're maybe thinking, how can I experience that with some guidance, or how can I get some training and how to help couples do this work? Um, so, what kinds of things do you offer? Okay, so one thing I offer for couples is a two day intensive session, nine to six, nine to six, in which the package that I described in our first conversation and the one I just described to you now is the thing I offer the couple. So that's one thing. And people do come from everywhere. And I mean everywhere, which is very exciting for me because I do it in four languages, in five actually. So um, that's one thing. Uh, The other is a training in encounter-centered couples therapy. And I'm right now in a transition where I'm not the one organizing the training anymore, but I have enthusiastic organizers who say, I want to organize a training, and then I will come to their community. And so this is ex- this is right now the transition into that kind of um, new way of having programs. And um, so if... Among the ones who listen, there's somebody who feels like, oh, wow, I want to organize a training. I do a one-day training, which is a tiny introduction. I do a three-tree training that enters into demonstrations. And then I do a five-day training, which really enters into depth. Great. So if that's what people want to organize, I'm game. Awesome. And they should reach out to you through your website. Exactly. Yes, indeed. Or call Jeffrey at 305-601-0010. Great. And we'll make sure that information is also available. Haiti Schleifer. Thank you so much for being here with me and with all of us today. Um, Such a pleasure. Your work is amazing. And um, I feel like I've been uh, here for a transmission of sorts. And uh, I just really appreciate your taking the time to reveal this unraveling process. Um, I think even hearing about the process is in itself 
probably going to be transformative for a lot of people listening. So thank you so much. Thank you, Neil Satin. A pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.